Welcome to the seventh episode of VS Tomorrow 2010 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who did say last episode that we wouldn't go four weeks without recording and didn't lie because it's almost six, Logan Saunders. Good morning. Good morning, Canada. Wake up, Canada. Wake up. <laughs> um, how has your last month and a half been? Uh, it's had some ups and downs. You got to see my, my smiley face a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's true. I can't believe... Was it just two weeks ago? Yeah, two weeks ago yesterday I came home. So you would have you would have landed home two weeks today. Yeah, well, where was I last when we last recorded a podcast? Oh, God, you were somewhere somewhere in Eastern Europe. It was about the 26th of May, I think it was, something like that. 26th of May, so it would have been in Georgia, Armenia we recorded one. So, yeah. Where in the world is Logan Saunders? Let's begin with that. <laughs> uh, I'm back home in Vernon. I've been back home for, yeah, I guess if we had hung out two weeks ago, I guess just under, oh, what, what's today, Tuesday? I think two two weeks, two weeks as of today I've been back home. Yeah, I think you were flying from Halifax on uh, on the Tuesday. Yeah, so yeah, two weeks ago I was in Halifax, and then, yeah, flew back home into Vernon earlier than planned. Um I know we're dating ourselves a bit with the recording of this podcast, but this is the first podcast we have recorded since Gian passed. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise when uh, when you sent me that message, I'll be perfectly honest. That was everyone's reaction, really. was um, I uploaded the, the eulogy I did, and then the little discussion. Which made me cry, you bastard. I have to say, when you sent me the text, it made me cry. I told you you weren't allowed to make me cry. Uh, sorry, sorry about that. So yeah, we had we uploaded the eulogy and the the roundtable we had of everyone sharing stories about Gian afterwards, and even that funeral was what on Sunday the twenty sixth. Yes. Yeah. So for was that nine days ago? So nine days ago we had Gian's funeral. So what happened with Gian? For those of you who don't know. Um, we were traveling for six months straight, and we spent the last two weeks in Israel. And we got engaged while we were in Israel. We planned to get married in Indonesia in September. I don't know. When, when is this podcast supposed to come out, Michael? <laughs> I've not decided yet. Okay, so it's July 5th of 2022 uh, while, uh, while we're recording this. I know we don't like to do that, but I think we're making an exception here. Yeah, there's a non-zero chance that this is getting clipped and released separately, so... <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we both were flying. Uh, Gian was flying back home to the Philippines. She hadn't been back home in over six months or so and was going to look for a job. And I was flying off to Poland and was going to travel around for a couple more weeks before flying back home. And about 48 hours after Gian got home to the Philippines, she finished her and she hired a cleaning lady to clean her apartment. Everything seemed normal. She was. She seemed healthy. She had a doctor's appointment booked the next day. She was having heart and chest issues for the past year and a half, roughly. Yeah, about at least a year or so. And she went out to the public market, came back, started eating some food. And then I didn't hear from her for about 24 hours, contacted her sister. Her sister contacted her other sister, who contacted the landlord. Landlord went into Gian's apartment. And they found her dead in her apartment. She, the autopsy confirmed she suffered from a major episode, a fatal episode of cardiac arrest. 
they transported her to her hometown where they had a five-day wake for her. I believe she's buried in the same cemetery as her mother. Her mother passed about seven or eight years ago. I, of course, uh, had my brother-in-law fly out to Europe. And then, then of course, the three of us traveled through London for a couple days. Uh, my brother-in-law and I uh, went through Prague for a couple days after I arranged everything while I was in Poland, which was which will probably be a 48 or 72 hours of my life I'll never forget. <laughs> we had a one-day layover in Halifax. It was the first time my brother-in-law and I got to travel together. We've been talking about doing some sort of trip for 10 years or so. We wouldn't have been able to do this if uh, this hadn't happened, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, arranged my flights, came back to Canada early, arranged GN's funeral here within within Canada. We had the service, as I said, nine days ago. Yeah, all the visiting relatives, friends from out of town are back home, and life uh, life continues. Yeah. So, from my point of view, it was the the twelfth of June, I think it was. It was that Sunday. Yeah, it was. It was eight p.m. I think it was eight. It was eight p.m. at a local time in Poland when I found out. So it was a fairly early morning in the Philippines on the 13th when they found her. Her time of death was likely on the 12th, I think is what they figure. So we had arranged to do this episode on the 12th, and you'd sent me a message earlier in the afternoon just going, yeah, just waiting to hear from Diane because I've not heard from her today. And then, yeah, I got a message off you just saying, Gian is dead. And my response is, wait, what? What the fuck? And then uh, I pretty much said, let me know if you want me. And then uh, the next day we had a, uh, a few little calls and you said, do you mind coming down to uh, to London? I cleared it with work and uh, we had a nice weekend, despite the circumstances. Yeah, you had a few calls. I had hundreds. <laughs> no, we had a few calls. Between we us. had a few calls, yeah. You were, you were a few of hundreds of calls I had to do during those couple of days. What do you need? Do you need me? I'll be there. Done. <laughs> yeah. And then your reaction, Michael... Just like well, what, what, Jan? What do you mean, Jan? Like it's in in the after we had the eulogy, we we filmed everyone's reactions at the funeral, and my cousin Lisa, she she shared that when my aunt told her, she said, "Well, Jan, who?" She was going through her mental rolodex of all the Jans that she knew, and just didn't even consider the possibility it was in reference to me and Jan. Like I can't even remember whether we have mentioned it on the podcast this year, but when you were in Thailand, she uh, she was having a bit of heart troubles, and you forced her to go with the doctor eventually. Yeah, she was on medication, doing so much better. Like if she wasn't on medication and this happened, this would be a completely different scenario. Of oh, you know, I really, really, really should have pushed really hard to get into get her into the doctor, but the fact that she was. Prop, getting properly treated for it, she should have gone in more frequently when we were in Georgia. But it was it was tough. I mean, it was a huge struggle to get her in to see the doctor, and uh, she had an appointment booked for the following for the following day on the Monday. Like we knew there could be some episodes. Like if we were walking a lot during a day, then she would have issues. But it was twenty times better than it was before. Like she would have to stop every five minutes to catch her breath. Once she got on the medication, she was able to walk the entire length of Patong Beach and back completely fine. We did long tours where she wouldn't feel, where she wouldn't have any episodes until like late at night after we had been out doing a tour of, of Georgia for 
10 or 12 hours, right? An organized tour with lots. And this was, this is with inclines and, and lots of walking. So until we get back, that she'd feel winded. A huge contrast to before where, yeah, it was a flat surface and she's winded after five minutes and having to, having to stop for a couple minutes. It's a long story there, but she really, really didn't want to go in to see a doctor. And then uh, the co-creator of my trivia team, he passed away back in April. I think we recorded podcasts talking about that. And that forced Jan to get in where it was easier to convince Jan to go in, go into emergency. And they're like, your blood pressure is really high. Her numbers were getting were a lot better than it was before. It wasn't fatally high, but yeah, now, yeah, she's been gone for about three weeks now. And this is the first podcast we have recorded since her passing. I must say it's a bit weird recording this podcast because for the past you know, half a year or so of recording, Jan's always like laying down on the bed behind my desk while we're recording the podcast. Or she's always she's always in the room when we're recording too. We have a couple bloopers that we've edited out, I think, over over the past six months. There's definitely one that has been edited out. I can't remember whether the other one was, but the other one was actually pretty funny. But you're gonna get a video on that, so nobody may ever hear it. And even during our Masonry's 32 coverage, GN was there for, what, two episodes when we were recording Masonry's 32? She was definitely there for the Philippines episode. Yeah, it's two years ago now. So she would have been there for the finale as well. Almost two years, yeah. This is our 26th episode together this year. 26. So yeah, she's been here probably for, other than the mole finale, she's been here for all of the recordings. So that was the weird thing, because yesterday I said, okay, I think I'm ready to try a podcast, and it didn't occur to me until this morning of, hmm, GM's always in the room listening to us talk. <laughs> Usually you've got to relay something I've said when she sneezes. Yeah, <laughs> the sneezing fits, yeah. Or sometimes she'd pipe into the conversation for a minute or so, and that, that usually gets added out too. So big, big, big change. I must admit, I was very surprised when you said to me, right, I think I'm ready yesterday. I'm like, are you sure? That's, it's quite soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get at least one in and see see how it goes. And if it's not fun, <laughs> maybe we'll be even longer for Venom. But it's almost worse right now because I'm not working at all right now. I took the month off. And then I had all my visitors distract me for the past for quite a few days there. Canada Day weekend just happened. There were a lot of activities going on. So yesterday was kind of the first major day of everything. Of like, just kind of like, life goes on in a way. I mean, it is summertime, so some people I know have a bit more free time than usual. But for the most part, it's, you know, everyone's back to work. And yeah, I got to find a way to go about my day. And having having this podcast may end up being a good thing. And who knows, maybe we'll go through like three or four seasons of Vidim. Over the next couple months, who knows? <laughs> if nothing else, we can pre-record next year's historians if you want to make my life a lot easier. Yeah, because once I start working, or of course, and another question I've been asked all the time is, so are you going to go over to the Philippines just to go to Gian's burial site? And the answer is yes. I just don't know when. So when that happens, yeah, we're not going to be recording for a couple weeks or so. Then I'm sure. No, it's got to. As I said to you when when we were chatting about this in London, it's got to be the right time. You can't do it on anyone else's schedule. It's got to be on, on yours. Yeah, because I was Googling, like, well, how, how long does it take before some, somebody goes to the burial site of a spouse or, or when somebody loses a, a child? 
And guess what? Google doesn't have the answer to that question. <laughs> the answer is exactly what I said to you at the time. It depends on the person. Yeah, everyone's template is going to be different for the, the path to the grieving process going back to normal. And I've never really had experience with sound about you, Michael, but the trivia teammate I had was one of the closest people to me who had passed. And that was just a couple months ago, also by a fatal heart attack. And a couple of uncles, but uncles I didn't really see all that often. And a couple of cousins who I've met a few times, but again, didn't see all that often, didn't keep in close contact with. So to go from that to my fiance passing unexpectedly, uh, which is pretty much the worst case scenario for, I think, a- anyone. Well, for in terms of like the one person they don't want to lose, it's their, their you know, their soulmate. <laughs> yeah, that's so, it's a pretty big jump. So there's a, as Jeff Probst would say, there's a really, really steep learning curve to this. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure it all out right now. And who knows, maybe this podcast will, will help. We're on a flavoring seven, if I'm not mistaken. We are, and I'm getting to that shortly. But I don't know whether you remember in uh, in 2014 we had uh, the news about my grandma dying, and that ruined me for weeks. All I can say is it it doesn't ever go away, but it does get easier. Yeah, one thing. So one thing I've noted for anyone who 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 goes through a traumatic loss like this then everyone you know shares all of their traumatic losses. So all you, all I've heard from the past three weeks is, oh, this person had passed, that person had passed. Not like they're trying to one-up me. I know the intentions are are good and all, and the, 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 the attempt at empathy, which is funny, like, oh, man, this is a tough loss for me. And then, and then you, get a, you get hundreds of stories of losses being thrown at you. So uh, it's just a it's just a funny little observation I've I've made over the past couple of weeks. Well, misery loves company. Yeah, and now let's talk about our our Heinz misery in this episode of Venom. Yeah, I I mean this episode is pretty brutal for Ian. I did when I was originally watching this episode. I went back and uh, and tried to rewatch the reunion to see whether they actually say who would have gone home last week. They don't. But there is a brilliant quote from the mole apologizing for their actions in this episode and screwing Ian over. Because even even after watching this episode, and the last episode, you're still it's it's the same news as as Jan passing. What? How how did that how did that happen? It doesn't make sense. I said this to you last time. It doesn't make sense how Ian goes off the back of being the one person with a green screen last time. Given all, especially given all the other circumstances for the episode with exemptions and all. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. And still, 12 years later, it still doesn't make sense how Aryan goes here. <laughs> yeah, 12 years later. That kid is going off to high school and it still doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And I've made no secret of the fact that Aryan is one of my favourites. He's probably my second favourite of the uh, of the season after, after an ironic favourite, Tim. But um, it it still just doesn't make sense how Aryan goes here. It's funny because even at the start of this episode, they have a very long recap of Aryan being the only one daring enough to look at his screen while everyone else deducted money from the pot. And then Peter Yan just goes over the blatant distrust within this group of five because it's more so Fritz. Fritz just opened this, unleashed a whole lot of hell with everyone doing things to screw each other over. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot at the end of the season, but 
I can't ever think of a a challenge being such a catalyst like like Fritz taking that exemption. Yeah, because well, they start hiding a suitcase and everyone just plays way more selfishly from that point forward. And Sana deducted a thousand euros from the pot after playing all of her yokers. And everyone's trying to go through that as if what was the rational decision making there? Which still doesn't make sense 12 years later. And then then I think Erica is the only one who defends her decision saying, well, everyone needs to see Tokyo before they die. Eric didn't care about anything else. He just wanted to see Tokyo. Yeah. Well, I can't blame her. Tokyo is like a top five city in the world that everyone wants to see. And it's a five-hour bus ride from Yamagata to Tokyo. And Fritz comments on the crazy driving. And Eric comments on the never-ending buildings. As somebody who spent 10 days in Tokyo, the never-ending buildings is a very true thing about Tokyo. It really makes me laugh because I have the note here that is just, as punishment for paying 4,000 euros from the pot, they have to use a bus ride to Tokyo rather than getting any normal transport. The thing about Tokyo that's interesting when I was there is you don't really see that many cars on the road because the public transit is so damn good. Because there's 30 or so lines from Shinjuku Station and Shibuya Station, all, all that's all around you, especially all around the Shibuya crossing. You just see the sign for the line that you need. And the fact that, you know, tens of millions of people go through this Shinjuku Station each day, and it's a massive station, you understand, hmm, I can see why the traffic isn't all that bad in Tokyo, because they make it so convenient to use the public transport. Yeah, especially compared to other major cities in the world. Well, yeah, take Manila, for example. Over 20 million people, and it can take four hours to go a couple kilometers during rush hour, and that is no exaggeration. And that's because their LRT really, really sucks. Take uh, Amsterdam. It takes two and a half hours to get through security at the airport at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, not that I'm still very annoyed. What's funny is that American Air, that the Schiphol airport workers told American Airlines, I think, I think it was American Airlines where they sent them a memo saying, please stop selling tickets for flights to Schiphol because we're still in a dire situation. Don't sell any more tickets. So American Airlines listened to them and said, okay, we won't sell any more tickets to Schiphol for the rest of the summer. Yeah, there's a few uh, a few airlines that have done that with, uh, with Schiphol because it, it- it genuinely was a nightmare situation. There's no better way to put it. I don't know whether I've mentioned it a few times. And Sana, when they're driving through Tokyo, she says, yeah, it's like a sort of video game. Yeah, I know this is shocking, Sana, but a lot of video games are made around Tokyo. Or at least Osaka, too. It was sort of a video game. Well, lots of video games use Tokyo as the environment in the game. Having said that, um, in probably about 18 months' time, I'll be uh, hopefully going to um, it's Universal in Hollywood where they're opening Super Nintendo Land, because it looks awesome. Yeah, I've heard. Actually, Brett and I were talking about Super Nintendo Land, too. I've seen Super Nintendo Land from Universal Studios Japan, and oh my god, it looks amazing. Yeah, it's got really, really good reviews. And they're... Uh, well, they're quite close to finishing building Super Nintendo Land, I think, now in uh, in Hollywood. So when the hype dies down a little bit, I'll uh, I'll be flying over. 
So they get to Tokyo and they get an SMS text to pick one person with a good ear. Don't forget that Eric gets the text and actually knows how a phone works this time. Yeah, he doesn't open it upside down. <laughs> He's actually learned from his time in Japan of how to use a flip phone, which is amazing for Eric. And Sana and Aryan vote Aryan with a good ear. Kim, Eric, and Fritz vote Eric with a good ear. So majority rules, Eric has the good ear, and then we get lots and lots of B-roll of Shibuya Crossing and the various scramble crossings around Shibuya Crossing. Weirdly, no one picks Fritz. Fritz is going to get picked on so much this episode. Could it be because it's a solo role and they're not giving him any power over the game still because they don't trust him? Yeah, they're thinking, well, there's an exemption coming up or lots of money. We don't want Fritz in that key role, even though he just saved their ass in the last episode. So there's four suitcases. One suitcase has Yokers. One has dinner with a fellow candidate of your choice. Third suitcase has a golden question mark, and the fourth suitcase is empty. And if two or more people claim the same suitcase, it's out of the game. And Eric is segregated and told about the other group's assignment, and he'll win 2,000 euros for the pot if he knows who has which suitcase. And Eric gets to listen to what they're saying on the walkie-talkies, and Eric disappointed says, Oh, once again, no yokers for me. He keeps getting screwed out of Yokers all season. He does. And it's worth pointing out that the negotiations take place in the middle of Shibuya Crossing, and they have until the lights change to make their trades. Yes. Which, for those of you who haven't been to Shibuya Crossing, it is as chaotic as it seems on TV. Thousands of people crossing simultaneously, and you're just trying to take in all of the stimuli all around you as you're trying to get to where you need to be before the light changes. There is a very good reason that it is one of the most visited locations in Amazing Grace history. Because there's no scramble crossing like this anywhere else in the world. But yet it's so per- it's still it's so perfectly orchestrated. And you're just blown away thinking, I just went through a whole lot of chaos, but yet everything went super smoothly. I do also have to say that this is the sort of challenge which makes Japan a brilliant location for Vidim. You couldn't do this challenge anywhere else, and that's the sort of challenge we really advocate for on this podcast, is stuff that is just so intertwined with the location of the season. So Aryan runs up to Kim, and Aryan picks out instantly that he knows Eric can listen on the walkie-talkies, which I think is a pretty brilliant observation on his part he's genre savvy what can we say he knows exactly what they're going to do to him after 10 seasons yeah he's and this isn't the first time that Arian's picked up on what the hidden part of the assignment is going to be because i think during the the trail with the japanese characters that they had to memorize i think he picked up on that didn't he he did he was the person who spotted uh, spotted the candy on the signs yeah and then we see Sun and Fritz run up to each other, and there's a whole lot of jockeying for different suitcases, and a lot of a lot of confusion ensues. And I can't help but notice there are a lot of people wearing face masks, and it's only 2010. That's an East Asia thing, though, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It was the exact same when I was in Taiwan. There's so many people on the. Uh on the underground wearing face masks, and in Singapore, actually. 
And Sana and Aryan eventually run up to each other. Sana wants to dinner, but Fritz also wants to dinner. And Eric has to create, he ends up creating a chart of everything he's hearing. And then he said, well, it started well with all four of them. And then he realizes one specific person was messing around, but he never reveals who he thinks that one person is. Yeah. Do you think that Aryan's genre savviness here actually helped them all? Yes, because all four of them would be in on intentionally deceiving Eric. Because if they think that Eric isn't playing for money from the pot, but for an exemption instead, if he can correctly guess them, then people start messing around. Yes, I think that's exactly what happened. Because Arian didn't pick out that it was for money in the pot. He probably was thinking, oh, Eric is listening, and it's probably for an exemption. Yeah, especially given that they've just come off the back of during a non-elimination episode, which was the only non-elimination of the season. They know someone's going home. So the chance of someone being awarded an exemption in this episode is rather high. Yep. So Eric says that it's strange that nobody trusts each other with the Yokers. It's almost like two big betrayals have happened with advantages this season already. Looking at you, Santa and Fritz. And they then all write down what they want and meet up with Peter Yan and Eric. And as you said, he says that he had everything written down until someone started messing about. He predicts that Santa took the dinner. She takes the question mark. Fritz was predicted to take the question mark, and that is correct. Kim was predicted to take the yokers, but she went empty. And Aoyun was predicted to take nothing, but he takes the dinner. Peter Yan then badges him to try and reveal who messed around, but he won't say it publicly. And Aoyun picks Kim for the dinner, and Peter Yan says that Kim earned her empty suitcase. The irony, of course, is that the golden question mark, as with the theme of this season, would have given them absolutely nothing, because nothing is what it seems. Classic fiddle. Yeah, this is the theme of the season, which is Nietzsche's Vot had liked, which is now more associated with Vidum generally. But as I think I have mentioned in a previous episode, this is the first season that uh, that, that becomes kind of a, a mantra for the show. And then we get the pre-dinner scene, which I have compared in my notes to being like um, Summer Loving from Greece, as the boys and the girls separate and essentially just circle around each other. Yeah. <laughs> Go and tell me more, tell me more. Sana tries to get Kim to memorize her information so she can answer every question with Sana's answers instead of her own and try and throw Aryan off. Aryan says that if he eats with Kim, he'll get information on Sana without it being obvious that he's onto her. And Eric and Fritz sharing very knowing glance. Yep. At this point in the season, I think we are skirting around who the model is far more than than we have done in previous episodes, even though we've been terrible for it this this entire season. But it's fair to say that Ian was very much on the wrong track when he was suspecting uh, Sana in this episode. Yeah, and everyone knew he was on the wrong track. <laughs> Let's not correct him. <laughs> everyone apart from Ian knew that Ian was being set up for a fail here, and that's kind of what makes this episode so brutal. And Peter Yan... Uh, ask him with the empty suitcase, who do you want to exclude from the next assignment? She excludes, you guessed it, Fritz. (laughs) Because nothing is what it seems, and the suitcase isn't actually empty. Which is kind of funny, because the suitcase is what they hid from Fritz. So the suitcase keeps screwing him over. The suitcase giveth, and the suitcase taketh away. (laughs) And she has to choose someone who will try and earn the exemption with her, and she picks Aryan. 
And that means that Sana and Eric are going to be their opponents. Yes. And then Fritz has no idea this has happened. So Peter Yan just goes up to Fritz and says, uh, Fritz, someone decided you're out of the next game. And in probably one of my favorite gags of the whole season, Fritz just silently nods. He walks away and we just get a bunch of cutaways to him throughout this next challenge of him just sitting by himself. It's so mean. <laughs> and it, it really made me laugh, especially at the end of the challenge where he's like, yeah, someone's just kind of sent me to a park for five hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just people watch in Tokyo. He was like a kid in an excessively long timeout. <laughs> in more recent seasons, they would have sent him back to the hotel or something. But instead, they just send him to a random park in Tokyo and say, sit there for five hours. Think about what you did three rounds ago. <laughs> Poor Fritz. I know we've said this in previous episodes, but I feel really bad for Fritz with how how bullied he is by this group. There, there's just no forgiveness. They're the exact opposite of Julie Black from Amazing Race Canada. There's no forgiveness. And that joke, depending on when I release this episode, may age horribly. Oh yeah, we weren't recording yet, so let me let me ruin the joke by explaining it. Julie Black in her bio for Amazing Race Canada 8 said, I guess it was one of her three traits, and one of her three traits that she's known for is forgiveness. So there you go. That's your Julia Black Amazing Race Canada connection to this episode of Vidim. Yeah, it was her number one trait about herself was forgiveness. Fritz would have been been happy to be around Julie Black during the season. It's too bad she's not Dutch. So, the group walks in, and Eric and Senna are immediately sent away, as is Fritz. Kim and Ian have to disguise themselves using hats in a market, and they're both tall and blonde, so that is a bit of a struggle. Yeah, the disguises don't don't really blend. <laughs> it's, why don't they put on a fake mustache, at least? The irony of this is, of course, that in the end, Eric and Sano don't spot who it is. They don't spot the correct two people. And all they did was just put on a hat in Tokyo, where they'd really stand out. The hats were not a problem in this challenge. It's Kim and Ian's lack of urgency, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, they didn't really hustle as much as you think they would for two people who could get an exemption. Eric and Sana must follow a route through a market and reach the finish line within half an hour, as long as they know who is following them. Ian and Kim must follow them point to point and reach the finish line no more than a minute later than they do. If they are not recognised in the end, then they will both earn an exemption and be in the final four. Eric finds the first envelope, and they get a bit of help to find the second one. Ian and Kim lose them after two minutes. It was a disaster, and somehow they find them again after about five or six. The next envelope then hides in an arcade. They talk about who the followers could be, and speculate that it could be a form of tag with Japanese people dressed as cops. And we cut to Fritz sitting by himself while all of this excitement is going on. And at 23 minutes and 5 seconds of this episode, a kid sneaks up behind Sana just to mug for the camera. It is absolutely hilarious. I got the exact timestamp because it made me laugh so hard. <laughs> it's like you're ruining the spy game, man. In fact, my next note is uh, it's delightfully interspersed with Fritz just looking lonely on a staircase. I'm just waiting for somebody to sit next to him and then Fritz goes, Life is like a box of chocolates. Do you want to hear my life story? I miss Lieutenant Dan. 
Sana then accuses Eric of messing around with the maps, and they go back on themselves, which causes Ayn and Kim to have to hide. And they have eight minutes to reach the end point after picking up an envelope at a temple. And they say that they saw Kim run into the street, but Ayn and Kim didn't see them. With a minute left, they find Peter Yan and claim that Fritz and Kim are following them. Peter Yan rings the followers and gives them a minute to reach him. They run back to the temple, which then earns Kim and Ayn no exemption, and Eric and Sana nothing out of 2,000 euros for this challenge. Everyone walks away as empty-handed as Fritz did. Yeah. However, the absolute highlight of the episode and banner for this week is, of course, the reaction to Peter Yan saying that if they pick the followers incorrectly, they will win an exemption from Sana. Because Sana has a wonderfully over-the-top reaction to it. She is gobsmacked that there are two exemptions available and they aren't going to win them. Yeah, I believe I have the exact quote here. An exemption? Why didn't we both get an exemption? We got here. (laughs) The picture of Sana looking gobsmacked could genuinely have a Brazzers logo put over it. Oh, God. And I think I may have mocked it up a few weeks ago. I will have to dig it out. But it does make me laugh every time I see that banner. So Ian is vague with Fritz when he asks what the assignment was. Kim tells him, and also admits that she was in control of it. And he says that he had to sit in a park for two hours, thinking about what he'd done. They then move hotels again, and Ian pretends to play the self-playing piano. (laughs) And then we see Kim and Ian's intimate dinner. And Fritz thinks that Ian picked her to make them think that he suspects her. He says, in a wonderfully hubristic way, that he's not worried about Fritz, he should be the next person to go. He's been on the same mole since episode two, and doesn't want another competitor, someone who'll remember where everyone sits at lunch, and beat him to the money in the end. And Kim and Fritz have a hilarious conversation before this, where Kim tells Fritz that she was responsible for him not playing in the challenge, and he just says, well, why? Couldn't I play? It just doesn't occur to him that it could be because of the chain gang mishap from several rounds ago. And then Aryan jumps in and says, Fritz, did you have fun? No. (laughs) No, I did not have fun sitting outside on a step, on a concrete step in Tokyo for five hours while you guys got to do a challenge for money and two exemptions. This is a wonderful episode for them burying Aryan with his suspicions and them burying Fritz with his sarcasm. It's brutal for both of them in different ways. One great cultural touch they have, uh, right after the self-playing piano bit, is when they're all in the conveni. Do you know what a conveni is in Japanese culture, Michael? I do not, but it does sound like the sort of nickname Australians would give something. So it just refers to a convenience store such as 7-Eleven or Lawson or like a family mart in Asia that's really popular in Japan and people can do some grocery shopping here because they're a lot nicer than our convenience stores. So it's just referred to as a conveni. Yeah, we don't really have 7-Elevens or anything like that in the UK. And around Europe in general, I saw very, very few of them. But in Japan and Thailand, you see them everywhere. Yeah, you see stuff like the Carrefour Express across from your Airbnb in uh, in Brussels, but you don't really see anything like a 7-Eleven. Yeah, apparently a 7-Eleven is Japanese-owned. I'm, I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I learned that a few months ago, because in Thailand, 7-Elevens are so frequent, I thought, is there some sort of Thai ownership with 7-Eleven here? But no, it's Japanese-owned. 
So I thought, okay, that's why I see so many of them in Japan and Thailand specifically. For instance, when Jian and I did the bus ride from Bangkok to Phuket, the highway was just every couple hundred or a few hundred meters or so or a kilometer. You see a 7-Eleven, drive a bit further, you're out in the middle of nowhere, oh, there's another 7-Eleven. So they wake up on day 13 and the mobile phone rings again while they're in the lobby. PTN asks for three loners who are good at non-verbal confrontation. And they pick Kim, Eric, and Sana. Fritz and Ian then meet PTN at Shinjuku Station. He tells them that there are three webcams around the city, and the others will visit those webcams to try and communicate something to them, which will earn them 2,000 euros. The other three each receive an envelope containing 1,000 yen, part of a website address, and the location of their webcam, alongside a mobile phone, where they can see their webcam. Kim appears on her camera and then goes to buy paper, as does Sana. And Kim, because there's nowhere else to buy paper, buys her paper from the Disney store. Eric uses boxes from the recycling instead, and sadly those do start blowing away. And I have to say, Sana's letters are surprisingly clear. Yes, yes they are. Especially given the chaotic element of this challenge. If this were an American episode of The Mole, I think the Disney store would have definitely been censored out. Oh, 100%, unless Disney were uh, paying for it. Mind you, it would have been on ABC, wouldn't it? So, Yeah, then they would definitely be included. Never mind. <laughs> they somehow get the website address and it gives them the instructions for the challenge, which is to make sure that everybody is at Flag Square on the southeast corner of Shinjuku Station by 2pm, and also gives them the phone numbers of the other three participants. Eric is the only person who doesn't answer. He doesn't hear the phone because he's too busy talking to locals. Kim and Sana then get a taxi together. Eric finally picks up after four attempts, and Fritz suspects that he was moling. And Arjen says that if Eric is the mole, he passed on luck last time as he suspected a woman. And then Eric passes the Disney store, where Kim got her paper from. I like how Eric didn't know Shinjuku Station, because I feel like that's the most famous metro station in the world. (laughs) It's certainly up there. I mean, I'd go for probably something like Times Square, or maybe something like Piccadilly Circus. But Shinjuku Station's definitely up there. Yeah, in terms of the metro station itself, like being inside of it, that's the most famous one. And I like how Eric's like, what? Shin, shin what now? Shin who now? Shin who? Shin who? And because Peter Yang can't be asked actually turning up, he appears on the screen at Shinjuku and tells Aryan and Fritz that they're too late, and as a result, win absolutely nothing of 2,000 euros for the challenge, and absolutely nothing of 6,000 euros for the episode, and 11,400 of 54,200 for the season so far. When Eric is riding the Metro, I was amazed that the other camera operators could also fit on the Metro with him. Is it not very big? Well, it's just usually quite crammed. <laughs> the the metros, I mean, Shinjuku Station, the all the metro lines, yes, there are always lots of cars to be in. But even then, they, they have people hired specifically just to shove people on and cram everybody in during rush hour. Yeah, if you bear in mind that, that Tokyo's metropolitan area has about two-thirds of the population of the UK. And more than the entire population of Canada. I think it's 40 million people for all the Met, for Metro Tokyo now, if you include Yokohama. 38, what he says. Yeah, so about, about 40 million. <laughs> so it's now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows these goes home, except for the mole who can never go home. And the only person with an advantage 
is Aryan, who has three yokers. Eric says that it was very easy to make sure no money was earned in the follower assignment. They went for the exemption instead of money, so Aryan and Kim must have been moling. We believe that Aryan suspects Eric. Sana says her mole thought she took an empty suitcase, so she took one herself. She sometimes shows herself and makes sure that no money is won. We're led to believe that Kim suspects Sana. And Fritz says that nothing is what it seems. He's not sure anymore. It could be Aryan, Kim or Sana, as all three of them do weird, illogical things. Right at the end of the last challenge, I don't mean to you know, go too far back, but I still find it hilarious how... So the three of them teased Kim and Sana that there were just 30 seconds left in the challenge <laughs> and just making them rush as much as possible. And then they're like, oh, 30 seconds. Oh, did we get in time? Oh, no, you were late by 15 minutes. It's just a joke. Or Eric claiming that his phone was on silent. And then Ryan's like, no, no, your phone, it's vibrating. It clearly was not on silent. How were you late by six minutes and missed four call phone calls? It's like, well, at least I didn't open it upside down this round. So PTN says they've only been in Tokyo for 36 hours, but whoever leaves today has got a very long way through the season. And he's proud of them. Kim, Fritz, and Sana all get green screens before Aryan gets the shock red one. Jesus, man. That was one of the reactions. Yeah, this was a big shock at the time because Aryan, as I've mentioned before, was the number one suspect of the Dutch public when he went home. He is also... One of the more beloved people in this season, even before he became Dutch John Oliver. So it was a big old shock that Aryan gets a red screen here, because he's a huge part of this season. And not to mention that, even if he isn't the mole, he's not going to go this round. No. He got a green screen last round. Like, it doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of shocks and gasps from everybody. It's one of the biggest reactions to a late game elimination, because you think, well... If you're not the mole, it's a one in four shot of you going home anyway. But everyone just thought, well, there's no way Aryan can go home. He was the green screen. He got a green screen. He was safe. He didn't really play his Jokers. There's no reason for him why he would go. It doesn't sound like he's changed his suspect at all. It doesn't sound like anyone else has changed their suspect either. It just doesn't make sense. Even 12 years later, they still haven't revealed who would have gone home if nobody had bought a uh, a green screen last episode. They don't reveal that in the reunion, which is weird. And interestingly as well, we don't know how close it was. We know from everyone else's suspicions that they were probably on the right lines. So Iron going home here doesn't make sense given what we saw at the time four weeks before. One theory I have seen floated around is that no matter what, they were always going to give everyone a green screen last episode because they have to do the non-elimination. So Aryan probably still would have got a red screen. It's just that they had to show a green screen because they couldn't have someone go home before Tokyo. Yeah, but it's just, that's really that's a really unethical thing to do, though. Oh, God, yeah. Because you're just outright lying and manipulating the outcome. They absolutely wouldn't do that sort of stuff now, but I have seen the theory floated around that that's, that's the only thing that makes sense is that that did happen. And then Aryan still had two Yokers left, because he probably figured he didn't have to play them. <laughs> and those two, he played his three He played three of his Yokers this round, right? Three of his five Yokers he played. I didn't have any noted down that he played, but I had it noted down that he started with three, so he might have played one. Might have just played one, okay. Yeah. So I had, yeah, Aryan still had two Yokers left, he played three of his five Yokers and still went out. 
Why didn't he play all of them? Maybe he probably goes anyway. I think, if I remember rightly, he didn't play any last round because he wanted to see whether he was on the right track, but he gave one to Fritz in exchange for information. So he started this episode with three, and he played one in this test. But he had, he had five. He started with five, right? Oh, no, no, he didn't. Sana had five. Yeah, Sana had five, he had four. So he started with four, gave one to Fritz last episode. Had three, played one. Yes, that does make sense. You can tell it's five and a half weeks since we've uh, we've watched episode six. Started with four, gave one to Fritz in exchange for information, didn't play any on that test. Started this test with three and played one this time and still had two left over. Then Arian is just left equally stunned. He says, I think it's not what I thought it was. I think I underestimated one of you. And then Peter Yan takes Arian away. Peter Yan just bluntly says, in classic Peter Yan fashion, well, that was that was a slap in the face. And Narian says, I respect someone else very much for what he or she did. And then Peter Yan says, well, you were wrong. And Narian responds, apparently. It's a super awkward goodbye chat. Even by Peter Yan standards, it's super awkward. Yeah, you were wrong, Narian. Well, apparently I was, Peter Yan. <laughs> Good observation, Dorothy Ann. <laughs> I think as soon as he gets that red screen, he realizes who the mole is and realizes how bad he's messed up. Yeah. And the other four one are all stuck there. Like, what the hell just happened? How did Aryan go after being safe with the same configuration of players? And it's the most confused we've seen the final four. It's not just a matter of, oh, everyone suspected Aryan and Aryan is gone. It's what? How did how does he get eliminated as opposed to one of us? Yeah, I'm sure Bindles will correct me on this, but I can't think of another time when we haven't found out at the end of the season who would have gone home in in the case it wasn't an elimination. Yeah. This is the only time I can think of in, in mole history where they still haven't told us who would have gone home and who would have got a red screen, which makes it seem fishier than it probably is. All I can think of, too, is that maybe Arian also shifted who his suspect was during this episode because when he has his dinner with Kim, I, I wrote down the whole paragraph of him just really overthinking things. I think, what was the one quote? I'm scared that Sanar Eric is also on Sanar Eric since today, and it's changed. That person is on you, Kim. So I want that person on you. I want Fritz out. At least he's confused and spreading so much. I'm not worried about Fritz. You're not my compare because you're also on Sanar Eric. That's also been my mole since episode two. But I don't want the others to know apart from Fritz because he's just another competitor. Just a lot of twists and turns into what he's thinking. It's just a very odd outcome for this episode. Even though I've seen it three, four times at this point, it still kind of fries my brain a little bit every time I watch the ending of this episode and go, how is that even possible? So, next time, Tokyo Tower, Kim and Erica write on schedule, Peter Yan interrogates them, and an assignment at an abandoned building sees our first finalist revealed. Have you got anything else you want to say? Nope. The pot's at 11,400 euros. Once again, it was not a productive episode for them. Which, by modern Vidum standards, is pretty astronomically high, actually. Yeah. We've still got the, the price of Fritz hanging over them. But uh, by modern Vidum standards, they'd be quite satisfied with 11,400, I think. Yes, and then it would all be donated to Rocky's charity. Of course. So, thank you for listening to our Vista Mall 2010 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for another old mall in Japan.
Don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan's on Twitter, logs of Quacking, and I'm Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. Thank you, as always, to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace out and just chill until the next of Flavoring. So what did the mole do? A lot. <laughs> Other than single-handedly fucking are, you know. Yeah, that was a lot of investment in manipulating Arya in this episode. And then the suitcase challenge, it's pretty clear that Eric figured out that Kim screwed this challenge up. Yeah. I think it would have been very interesting to find out what would have happened if nobody had claimed the empty suitcase. Maybe the golden question mark? replaces the role of the empty suitcase? Yeah, I don't know. Because apparently the golden question mark would have ended up being absolutely nothing, and the empty suitcase would have been the chance at an exemption, but it just doesn't make sense. Like a lot of things in this part of the season, it just doesn't make sense. But Kim actually does apologise to Aryan in the reunion for um, for actively screwing him out of the game here, which she does. Yeah, she really manipulates him in this episode. Yeah, Kim is definitely coming into her own at this point in the season, I think is is fair to say. And no, because really she manipulates Arya and every the reason why she sabotages every challenge successfully is because of how much she manipulates Aryan. Because it's not just a suitcase challenge. Of course, Kim picks Aryan for the for the chase. And uh she manages to screw that up without him noticing. Stop giving me PTSD about the chase. It re-aired last week. <laughs> Sorry. That was a fun surprise. And, uh, Kim, yeah, Kim, of course, Kim, I'm sure, made sure they screwed around at the temple a bit and didn't arrive on time. And then Kim would be completely unattended for the for the billboard challenge so that she would arrive as late as possible. <laughs> so the, the last challenge when there's no one... There's no one keeping tabs on her. It's really, it's a lot easier to sabotage in that scenario. And then she probably, I'm sure, was connected with production to know roughly when to show up to not be suspiciously late to the party. Yeah. It's worth pointing that out as well. The Obviously, we talked a lot about what you've been up to in the past five and a half weeks, but I was sat in the, the car park of my local Costco last Wednesday afternoon, and my phone started blowing up. And um, there's people going, oh my god, you chase episodes repeating. And I think it was more of a vitriolic reaction to me this time than it was when it first aired. I got a lot of hate tweets. Weird. My favourite one was um, was just four words. Michael is a twit. <laughs> Nothing more. It was just those four words. And uh, yeah, it was very entertaining. <laughs> Anything else to say about Kim before we sign off for this episode? Uh... No, I think we just about covered it. Yeah, she she played it perfectly this round. No, well, no money went into the pot. No, I mean, I guess she probably confirmed for Eric that she's the mole at this point. I think all of them are on. Eric, Son, and Fritz are now all officially on Kim 100%, right? Yeah, all four of them. Well, all, all the final three contestants were definitely on Kim by the by the time that they all went home respectively. It's a race to knowledge now rather than a race to uh, to find out who the mole is. I was thinking too, 
What's brilliant is that there's only one person who doesn't think she is the mole, and she uses that person to successfully sabotage every single challenge to ensure no money goes into the pot. That's pretty impressive when three other people know it's you, and they still can't do anything to stop you. In the pantheon of good moles, I don't think Kim is talked about very often, and I know we're going to end up talking about this at the end of the season, but Kim plays this episode in particular masterfully. Yeah. It's a tour de force episode for her as a mole. That's why it's so bizarre to see people, uh, the, the, the Dutch people online say, oh, Kim is one of the worst moles ever. And I'm thinking, yeah, she doesn't start off the greatest in the first couple rounds, but by this point in the season, that was a master class on how to keep money out of the pot. Yeah, she overplays her hand very early in the season, but by this point, seven episodes in, she knows how to play with Aryan and knows how to get him to do everything she wants him to, and knows how to get that big shock reaction in the uh, in the execution. So, yeah, at the end of the season, we will obviously talk a lot more about Kim as a mole as a whole, but I think maybe not in the upper pantheon of moles, but I think she deserves a lot more credit than she gets. Absolutely. <laughs>